Hello, guys. Welcome to another live stream. My name is Ansel Linder. This is Bitcoin and Markets. I'm simulcasting on Telegram, kind of my home base and Twitter spaces. I just sent out a tweet with this space, so we'll see how many people join. Uh, it's been hit or miss on Twitter spaces. Sometimes if there's no other spaces going on, I'll get like 100 people in there. Um, if there is a big space going on, you know, usually it's down to sometimes just low double digits that join. But anyway, I like I like what Twitter Spaces is turning into. They have some plans with podcasting, integrating with different things. Uh, so we'll see how that develops with Elon Musk at the head of Twitter. I don't have any plans to leave Twitter anytime soon. A lot of people, uh, I think it's going to turn into a great thing. I know Elon Musk is having a hard time right now at the beginning, uh, trying to find a way to make it profitable. But I believe that, I, I don't think that he's trying to find a way to get richer off of Twitter necessarily. Um, you know, taking it private, he, he'll, uh, you know, maybe he'll even turn into some sort of nonprofit in the future because uh, it is a public square. And I think he really does have that type of mentality. Um, but anyways, so that's going on with Twitter spaces, my guys over here on telegram, what is up for everyone listening? Uh, I do most of my posting on telegram. So if you're listening on spaces, get over to the telegram t.me for slash Bitcoin and markets, and you can see what I'm doing there. Um, gonna don't have really much, to, uh, planned today. I'm just going to go over some of the stuff I posted, Maybe have some laughs with you guys. Um, today is Wednesday, so most of the morning was spent uh, preparing an outline and a slide deck for FedWatch. That is the show that comes on at 3 p.m. Eastern. So make sure if you guys are available at 3 p.m., you can tune in on YouTube or Rumble and listen to FedWatch live. That's with Bitcoin Magazine's YouTube channel. So I was busy doing that this morning and didn't really prepare anything for this live stream. So I'm just going to kind of go through some of the stuff that I was looking at this morning. We could talk about the price action, some of the charts, some of the macro stuff, some of the currencies. Um, what else? What else did I post this morning on Telegram? Actually, let me look at my tabs because I think I had one that I kind of wanted to read through here. Oh, yes, this paper. So Matthew Pines, if you guys aren't familiar with Matthew Pines, um, you can find him on Twitter, of course. He was a previous guest of FedWatch, and he shared a link to this research paper by Matthew Ferranti, and he's talking about having Bitcoin as reserves at central banks and why that is an important thing going forward, at least to think about it. Uh, I think this is a very cool paper, and I haven't had a chance to dive into it, but uh, I will dive into it and talk about it at an, in a different, se a different session uh, or some sort of different format here. Um, but I link to that on Telegram. It's an important paper, and I, I recommend you guys reading through that. Um, what else did we have up here? Should we dive into charts? Okay. Uh, another Twitter thing that I saw on Twitter this morning was from Jason Lowry. 
And I just want to touch on this real quick because this, this show is it's started as a Bitcoin thing. It's still a Bitcoin thing, but it, Bitcoin has grown into being a systemically important asset or it's growing into becoming that. And of course, geopolitics and macro and all that stuff is all involved with that. And a lot of people that are taking this broader look or this broader kind of viewpoint at Bitcoin are becoming, you know, well-known out there. And Jason Lowry is one of them. At the behest of my guys over on Telegram, I, I looked into some of his recent appearances on podcasts and it's fascinating what he's working on. But here he posted something this morning, and I'll just read it. So it says, war is as predictable as clockwork. Populations will stop projecting physical power, causing their BCR to increase beyond a safe threshold, creating opportunities where populations will revert back to their primordial instincts to either capture high BCR resources or impose high physical costs on attackers. A lot of watts and lives will be expended until populations have sufficiently lowered their BCR, settled their disputes, established control authority over their resources, and achieved consensus on the legitimate state of ownership and chain of custody of their property. A block of time passes where people can enjoy a reprieve from the global scale physical power competition called peace. And then the whole process starts again. These blocks of time link together linearly, forming a blockchain we diligently record via history, a globally distributed ledger keeping account of who has control of what and what the consensus is on the legitimate state of ownership and chain of custody of all the world's resources. This clockwork behavior of modern agrarian warfighting society is illustrated in figure and then below. This is a very interesting idea. He's, he's really coming with some hardcore thought-provoking stuff in a lot of Jason Lowry's content here. And the, the, this image shows like a spike where there's war and then a, a, you know, a belly in the curve, and that's the peace. And then a spike where there's war and a belly where there's peace. But the first thing that struck me with this is that, you know, it's not the same everywhere. I, I agree with this process that he's talking about. But for most of history, up until 75 years ago, most countries were on different clocks. Maybe the Europeans shared similar clocks because there was like European war. And even before World War II, there were, there was, well, before World War I, I would say, there was even previous world wars that just weren't called world wars. So maybe the Europeans had some of this clockwork synced up and over the hundreds of years, the world has become more synced. But really since World War II is when the entire world's clock, clocks, all the clocks of all the countries, of all the societies and all the civilizations all put together are synced. And that is a very unique period in history and that's not natural you know it's natural that one civilization or society will have war and peace in a cycle and that will be affected by their neighbor's cycle of war and peace 
Perhaps their neighbor wages war on them or their neighbor is an ally and wages war on a neighbor's neighbor, right? And so that all of these clocks are not synced. They're all in their own, doing their own thing. They just resemble maybe their geographic neighbors, okay? That's how it's been throughout history. So yes, it's linear maybe if you're talking about an individual country, but when you're talking about the world or a continent even, uh, we can go down that far. They're not all synced up like this. I, I just thought of another period of time where a lot of clocks might have been synced is that that's the Mongol invasions. I mean, those did happen over a period of time, right? But they, they did happen pretty quickly up until 1250, I think, is when Baghdad was sacked. I'm not quite sure on that date. Um, but they happened really quickly at first. So that could have synced a lot of clocks at that time. But um, for the most part, they're all on different time frames. And anyway, I just wanted to bring that up. And bring up some conjecture for that. And I did respond to Jason Lowry there. So he didn't respond to me back, but I'm just bringing up some conjecture to further the conversation. Cause I think that's a pretty important idea to flesh out. All right. Um, what else? It looks like Genesis is in, the, in that have something to do with Gemini, right? Gemini urn or something. Uh, they're having, they've paused withdrawals. So it looks like there's some contagion going. Um, I don't know, guys. Uh, I thought this was over. I thought this rolling contagion was over uh, with all of these bankruptcies and stuff. But like, you know, FTX was <laughs> the granddaddy, but maybe it's not. Maybe the granddaddy is actually Ethereum. Maybe that is the epic collapse that we're waiting for and who brought this up this morning um i'm looking for it here was it in response to that that post let's see it was about leo ryan breen brought up this uh or no was that it i think that was ryan that brought it up but not in this one i'm looking at uh brought up leto and leto i have talked about it in the past just in passing that it was a a staking pool for Ethereum, but I really didn't look into it very much. I just saw that it was a staking pool and they're doing staking pools and things. Uh, but Ryan brought up that the peg is kind of breaking right now. Uh, it's supposed to be pegged one-to-one -one with Ethereum. So the way you do it is you uh, deposit Ethereum into Lido. They quote unquote stake it. I don't know how they will stake these marginal ether like let's say they get deposited only 30 ether in a day are they immediately going to somehow stake those 30 ether because you need 32 to stake i don't know if they can add to it i don't know if you can stake uh, if it's in increments of 32 or if you can just like 32 or 33 or 34 you know you can just go up above 32 that would be a good question to answer but um anyway so you deposit your eth they stake it for you and you get staked ETH, ST ETH. Now there's a secondary market for these staked ETH, and that is supposed to be pegged one-to-one -one with Ethereum. It will always be slightly below one-to-one, -one, or it should be slightly below one-to-one -one because it's not the exact same thing, but um, it looks like the, their peg could be breaking, and that's bad news. I mean, this just looking into it and this morning, 
I was like, holy crap, is that extremely dangerous what they're doing? Because it's illiquid on one side. So this is an algorithmic stablecoin run by a DAO, supposedly. This algorithmic stablecoin that we all know is that idea is just really bad idea. And there's probably thousands or tens of thousands of maybe hundreds of thousands of Ethereum staked with Lido. It is, if, if that peg breaks, uh, it could be a really bad day here because there is a, an attack vector, right? There's no, there's no buddy on the buying side of the staked ETH. So in the secondary market, you get your staked ETH, you can buy more ETH, right? You sell your staked ETH to buy more ETH to go in and get more staked ETH from Lido. Then you can sell that that staked ETH for more ETH and take that back to to get more staked ETH out of Lido or Lido, whatever you call it. But then there's nobody, there's no market that's a forced buyer of staked ETH because it's an illiquid. When you put your staked ETH into Ethereum, it's stuck there. There's no way to withdraw it. So their reserves cannot be mobilized to buy the staked ETH back. So that is a speculative attack on the staked ETH token from Lido. You could just short staked ETH and do this recycling. And you could probably do it pretty quick. You could programmatically do it, I'm sure, with APIs and stuff like that. Deposit ETH, sell staked ETH. Deposit ETH, sell staked ETH. Deposit ETH, sell staked ETH. That, that spread, that peg will break very rapidly. And since the reserves are illiquid, by definition, there's no way to protect it. That is dangerous. So maybe the granddaddy of this whole thing is going to be Ethereum going down somehow. Or Lido, or, you know, somehow really damaging the Ethereum ecosystem. I mean, oh man, that just, it looks like when I look at, when I started reading into it a little bit, just on their website, just the cursory, you know, basic research on it. Um, <laughs> I felt like I was looking at TNT, right? Like I could see the explosive power of this, this product that they built here. And it's not good. It is not good. Anyway, I don't want to spend too much time on that. Let's take a look at the chart. So I posted a couple charts. Bitcoin chart has a, uh, this is the hourly chart that I posted on Telegram. Um, so the last two hours have been green, but nothing special. I am surprised again, once again, how well Bitcoin is actually holding on despite all the FUD that's out there this morning with all these other places pausing withdrawals. So we'll see what comes of that. But Bitcoin right now doesn't seem to be reacting too much to it. Let me pull up the chart right at this exact moment. 16,586. So there doesn't seem to be any panic in the Bitcoin market right now, despite all this stuff about uh, Gemini, Genesis, USDC. Maybe that's the big daddy as well. That's going to break. That's going to blow up. I am not a USDC fan. I'm not really a Tether fan, but uh, I am... I'm much more aligned with Tether. I, I will defend Tether from the USDC trolls. I think they are the ones behind a lot of the FUD on Tether. But uh, I wouldn't be sad if USDC blew up. 
definitely that would bring regulation for stable coins like immediately if something like that blew up. But anyways, let's go on to how about let's look at the 10 year because this is one that I'm really watching close right now. We're at three point seven one. So seven one nine. So almost three point seven two percent. And remember, the bottom of the Fed funds range is three point seven five. Is below the bottom of the Fed funds range right now. Will this keep falling? And if this does, again, it puts handcuffs on the Fed. They that makes them choose: Do we want to lose confidence in the market in our monetary policy, or do we want to pause, or even pivot? We'll see how low this gets by their December meeting. Two weeks. Watching that very closely. Um, what else? Okay, that's all for charts, actually. Let's go on to a question that I got from Citadel21. I'm familiar with the name and the handle here. Um, but they posted for after yesterday's Twitter spaces a question. And I said I would answer it today. So let's just read what this question is. I agree, he says, or she. I agree that we're headed to a multipolar world, but I don't see why this necessarily means the death of globalization. Just because China has greater control over Asian oceans doesn't mean they'll blockade Western trade and vice versa with Western oceans. Okay, good question. Uh, first off, China won't blockade any ocean. Okay, they, they won't have greater control over any ocean. They'll have less control. They've never won a single naval battle in the history of Chinese civilization. Like not one that's been recorded, not any major naval battle. There's no reason to think that they're going to start now. You know, they have these two new aircraft carriers that are not quite as big as the U.S. aircraft carriers. And they have brand new crews, brand new technology that needs training. These guys are untrained. There is no, like in the U.S. military, there are generations of experience built into this. And not even that, there's there's hundreds of years of naval warfare. You know, the U.S. made the first ironclad, right? And the, some of the first submarines that were used in major combat were used in the United States. So there is long hundreds of years of experience and training and tactics and all that stuff. And China doesn't have any of that. They've also never projected power as a civilization. They've barely been able to hold together their borders. So just taking that point apart first is no, they won't. And so the, what's going to happen is if they are blocked from the ocean, they are going to retaliate by not trading with the West. Just like look at these trade trade wars. When someone puts a, a tariff on something, what does the other country do? They respond by putting another tariff on. And on and on and on. So the death of globalization is the birth of tariffs, of unfree trade. And yes, it won't get rid of globalization to zero. But if you just look at the trade statistics over the last several decades you know they increased 
until roughly the great financial crisis. And they've been decreasing since. And this is a volume of global trade or international trade, I should say. So that's just going to keep decreasing. And you're going to have more and more uh, shorter supply chains, domestic production, domestic concerns. So the, the, the thing about globalization is that it exists in a bubble in this fantasy world, okay? Because, <laughs> because uh, there is, it's very expensive to maintain peace, especially on the high seas where there's, you know, not a really easy way to maintain security of these sea lanes, right? You have to have an actual power that goes out there and either patrols with their boats or sets up international organizations that gets everybody on the same page. And all of these international organizations do some sort of decentralized policing of the sea lanes. But it's all based on a overall structure of things like the WTO, the World Court, um, the Bank of International Settlements, the UN, the IMF, all these international organizations that all, by the way, have been created since World War II, right? So this is a bubble that we've lived in of globalization. Yes, there will be international trade, but it won't be like the age of globalization, I would say, is characterized by, you know, cost cutting at all costs <laughs> at all by any means possible if you can save a dollar by outsourcing you outsource that that's not going to happen anymore because that not be well for two reasons one is that people's psychology will change and they will be more interested in domestic production but also because the cost benefit the cost of these things is going to go up because the international trust is breaking down that makes these long supply chains more expensive. There's going to be more acts of piracy. There's going to be more acts of, you know, um, losing a ship here and there. Maybe getting your port that you have in another country. You have some port operations going on. You know, you have a subsidiary in another country. Well, that subsidiary is now nationalized by that other country. So there, all of these things put together makes international trade more expensive, less attractive. And on top of that, we have this growing national, uh, nationalistic idea in the world, like this move back away from globalism towards nationalism. So all those things will break down what we consider globalization. Yes, there will be international trade, but it won't be as globalized. So in this multipolar world that we have, where we have spheres of influence, China won't have the seas, but they'll have a sphere of influence in the where they can reach with their military. You know, They can project some power outside of their borders, maybe South Korea, maybe into Central Asia, Mongolia, even Russia, um, Southwest. Asia, you know, Burma and Vietnam and places that they, they will be in this China sphere of influence. 
then we'll have another sphere of influence. Maybe there's an Eastern European sphere and a Western Europe and a South American or, or Western hemisphere would be the U.S. sphere of influence, right? In the Western hemisphere. So when trust breaks down and globalization breaks down like this and there's tariffs and there's not free trade and there's higher expense to trade, you need a neutral money. I mean, China, if the U.S. is doing all these blockades on them and, and there's this rivalry going on, they're not going to use dollars. Russia is not going to use dollars if they, if they, uh, unless they are somehow forced into it. But in, as these decades tick by, there are fewer and fewer people are going to save in dollars in reserves and things like that. And it's going to slowly go to a neutral currency that they can trust. They can trust Bitcoin. They can trust gold because they have it in their wallets or in their vaults. They can't trust the dollars that they hold in US uh, UBS. They can't trust dollars that they hold in Deutsche Bank or Bank of America because those will be seized. And dollars are digital now. So anyway, hope that answers the question. Love talking about that stuff. What else do we have up here? Um, just a couple minutes left. What can I talk about? Actually, let's just open it up for people. Uh, you guys on Telegram, if you want to raise a topic, let's let's keep it to five minutes. I got five minutes till a hard end. So go ahead and raise any topic you want or make any comments you want. I'll relay that to Twitter Spaces if we have anybody. All right. Well, we're while we're waiting to see if anybody raises their hand, uh, guys, Ansel Leonard, Bitcoin and Markets, check out BitcoinandMarkets.com. Make sure you sign up for the free newsletter. 3 p.m. Eastern today, I'll be going on live with FedWatch. We're going to be talking G20. We're going to be talking uh, CPI. We're going to be talking, what else? Let me pull up my notes here. Uh, digital dollar program. So the one that the Fed has just joined with these 12 banks and some pilot program. We're going to be talking about that, reading through a few things. So should be a good show. Maybe open it up for Q&A at the end. I said, hey, can I get 15 minutes of Q&A at the end? And they said, ah, let's keep it to five or 10 minutes. So I don't know if we're going to have a Q&A, but if you guys have questions and you're joining the, the live show, you know, ask them in the chat and hopefully CK will see those and we can bring them up at the end. All right. Well, no questions here from the Telegram group. That's going to do it for today. Thanks for joining and I will see you next time. Bye.